listening to the sermon podcast of Brockport First Baptist. We are a progressive American Baptist congregation located about 20 minutes outside of Rochester, New York. To learn more about our church and support our ministries, please visit BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Would you please join me in our scripture lesson this morning? It's from Luke 10, 25 to 37. I thought it was kind of nice that Doc Skitt leads right into our scripture lesson today. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you need there? read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and yourself as your, as your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going from, down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him, bandaged his wounds, and having poured oil and wine on him. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever you have, more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man and fell into the hands of robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. God said to him, go and do likewise. Thanks, Dick. <clears throat> Good morning again, everybody. So I'm coming off of a really action-packed weekend. If I seem to have like more energy than normal, it's because this has been a really amped up weekend for me. My weekend is really Friday and Saturday. This is not a, a weekend for me. Um, but I, I, it's the two days I usually take off, and so my weekends usually start Thursday night. Uh, but this past Thursday, we had our youth group kickoff. I've got a picture from there. It was an absolute blast. We had about 15 or 16 people come out. That was a mix of, of youth, uh, you know, 6th grade through 12th grade, and leaders. Um, came out for pizza, games. We did a campfire. We had an awesome discussion. Um, it was a really amazing time, and I am just so excited to see what happens with this ministry um, in the months and years ahead. Uh, this second picture is of some of us playing a, a yard game called Cube. Not cube and not cub, but cube. Has anyone played cube before? Oh, we got, we got a couple. All right. Cube is also called Viking Chess, and it's this really cool game. Um, the legend is it was developed by the Vikings. And um, you have these wooden blocks that you line up on either side of the yard, and then you've got these thick wooden dowels that you have to throw underhand, end over end, to knock over the blocks. <clears throat> and uh, it is really fun and surprisingly hard. The part I really like about this game, though, is that those blocks are called skulls, and the dowels you throw to knock them over are called femurs. 
And you can probably, some of you are already connecting the dots. The legend is that um, the Vikings would play this game after, after a long day of pillaging with the dismembered body parts of their enemies. So, yeah, ew. It's a, it's a, good, it's a good Christian game. Uh, <laughs> but we, we used wood, though. We didn't, no, one, no one was harmed in this game, um, and it was a blast. Uh, then yesterday, I was back here at church for a couple of hours, got another picture. Um, these are the college students who came for the Saturday of service. Every year, uh, the College of Brockport does this Saturday of service where they send groups of kids, uh, groups of college students, sorry, um, out to various nonprofits, businesses, churches to do volunteer work at the church. And uh, we had about a dozen or so students. They helped move up all the stuff for our rummage sale that's happening in a couple weeks. So all that junk you see out there, that was them. Uh, they did a wonderful job. They also uh, helped dispose of a bat that we found in the basement uh, without killing it, so bonus. Um, but that's what I call a pretty good weekend uh, here at church. Last Sunday, we kicked off a new teaching series looking at the parables of Jesus. And the parables are these metaphorical stories Jesus tells in the gospel that reveal certain truths about God's kingdom, about this new way of life, this new way of relating to God and to our neighbors that Jesus comes to enact. Those are the parables. Um, if you weren't here last week, I'd encourage you to go on our website, brockportfirstbaptist.org, and check out that sermon that you missed. Set some good groundwork for this series, and all of our sermons are actually on there, so you can always catch ones you miss there. Uh, but today we're looking at the parable of the Good Samaritan. This is probably one of Jesus' most famous stories. It's a story about a man who is attacked, robbed, and left to die on the edge of the road until a good Samaritan comes along to save the day. This is where we actually get the, the idea of a good Samaritan. This is where it comes from, is this story. Um, and across our culture, really, even for folks who've never been to church or never read the Bible, there's this sense of familiarity with the idea of a good Samaritan, someone who acts in some sort of dramatic way to help someone else in need. Um, we see the word Samaritan all over the place. Hospitals are called Good Samaritan. Uh, different uh, ministries, counseling centers, uh, groups that help the poor have Good Samaritan in their name. We even have Good Samaritan laws. If you've ever heard of a Good Samaritan law, that's a law that gives legal protection to someone who acts to help someone else, even if there's, there's something illegal involved like drugs or something like that. Those are, those are Good Samaritan laws. Everyone's heard of the Good Samaritan, even folks who've never heard this story. The problem is, though, <clears throat> when a story from the Bible becomes that familiar, that well-known, that commonplace, it can be really easy to miss what it was that made this story so interesting in the first place. And the parable of the Good Samaritan has been way over-domesticated by our churches and our culture. This is actually a story with some bite to it. This would have been a provocative story. If we were to hear the parable of the Good Samaritan in Jesus' day, in that original historical context and setting, that would be a story that was incredibly challenging to us and that I think can still reframe some of our thinking today. To give you a sense of just how provocative this story is, though, I need to use a personal example. Um, but let me preface this by saying that um, I don't know that this is universally true, but I do think it's generally true that most white people have at least one super racist relative. Am I right? 
Like there's, a, there's always one. Maybe it's an uncle or a grandparent or a parent. This might be true of other cultures and races as well. I can't really speak to that personally. But I do know that if you're white, you probably have one ridiculous, ridiculously racist relative in the family somewhere. And if you don't, it's probably you. No, I'm just, I'm kidding. <clears throat> I'm kidding. That's a, that's a terrible joke. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. The line was here and I crossed it. Anyway, <clears throat> I know this is true for me. Um, I have a few really racist family members, uh, most of whom are still living, and some of whom listen to these sermons, so um, I can't use any names in this story. But um, this one time, I was hanging out with a racist relative of mine. Now, this guy's, or this person's, not in the KKK or anything like that extreme, but this is the kind of person who will, you know, on occasion drop a racial slur, like casually. Or they'll tell a super racist joke and they'll wonder why you're not laughing. That's kind of the level we're at for this person. And this relative of mine also has at least one African-American friend somehow. There's, there's at least one. And there was this one time we were hanging out, this me and this racist family member of mine, and they dropped a racial slur that is typically applied to black people. And I stopped the conversation right there. I was like, whoa, whoa, time out. You can't say that. That's not cool. And I thought I was being clever. I used their friend as an example. I, let's, let's call him Dave. I said, would you use that word in front of Dave? Would you call Dave that name? And this racist family member of mine was like, no, of course not. Dave's one of the good ones, right? One of the good ones. How many people have heard that before? He's one of the good ones. Some, I assume, are good people, right? Like, this is kind of the realm we're working in. The good Samaritan. If you overheard someone telling a story about a good fill-in-the-blank, a good Mexican, a good Jew, a good whatever, that would probably put you on edge. That would raise a red flag, and rightfully so. A phrase like the Good Samaritan should have the exact same effect. The Samaritans were hated at the time of Jesus. We hear the word Samaritan today and we assume something good, the good Samaritan, but it was the opposite at the time of Jesus. And to really understand this, we need to kind of go back in history and unpack this, be this beef between Jesus' people, the Jews, and the Samaritans. So we're going to go all the way back to the year 930 B.C. I've got a map. You know it's serious when I bring a map that's way too small for you to read. That's okay. Uh, we're about a millennium before the time of Jesus with this map. Um, this is Israel, ancient Israel at its heyday. This is back when you had all the great heroic kings of the Bible, King David, King Saul, King Solomon. This is roughly what their kingdom looked like. <clears throat> but after King Solomon died, so around 930 B.C., the tribes in the north rebelled against Jerusalem. They rebelled against Solomon's son and the tribes in the south. And right around the year 930, the nation split in two. That's the next map. So that you had two kingdoms, Israel in the north, those were the rebels, and Judah in the south. 
Judah, by the way, is where we get the word Jew, like Jew, Jewish, Judah. That comes from the southern kingdom. Modern-day Jewish folks are basically descendants, for the most part, of the folks from Judah. And once this split happens, the story of the Old Testament basically continues on with Judah, the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom's still around for a while, but the Bible's focus narrows on Judah. And when the northern kingdom is mentioned, it's usually called Samaria. It's because Samaria was the capital of the kingdom in the north. So when the people of Judah talk about the kingdom in the north, they'll call it Samaria because they can't bear to call it Israel. And the Samaritans of Jesus' day are roughly descended from the people of Samaria in the north. So this split goes way back. It actually gets more interesting, though. In the year 722 B.C., and by the way, you don't have to remember these dates. There's not going to be a quiz or anything like that. I just think it's helpful to kind of map out. So now we're talking about seven centuries before the time of Jesus. The northern kingdom of Israel, a.k.a. Samaria, was conquered by the Assyrians. The Assyrian Empire sweeps in, they take over, they kill most of the people, but they don't stop there. One of the ways the Assyrians would hold on to power is they'd force all these smaller kingdoms they conquered to intermarry with each other. So you'd conquer two kingdoms, you'd kill half the people in each, and you'd force the survivors to get married. Oftentimes having, having people marry their former like worst enemies. And the idea here was to dilute the bloodlines, to reduce the sense of national and tribal identity, make it harder for the conquered people to mount some sort of uprising. So the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom, and they forced the people of Samaria to intermarry with Gentiles, people from other nations. The Samaritans of Jesus' day are the descendants of that. So fast forward to the time of Jesus. You now have almost a millennium of sordid history between the Samaritans and the Jews. From civil war to being rival kingdoms, to the shame and trauma of being conquered, right up to the time of Jesus. So like, if wealthy Jewish folks, the top of society, if they were up here like priests, temple authorities, things like that, And then, like, regular folks were maybe right under that. Gentiles were maybe here. Samaritans were somewhere down here. Do you see how culturally explosive a story like the Good Samaritan would be? Jesus is being incredibly provocative here. He's telling a story to a Jewish audience, to his people, where he takes one of their worst enemies and makes them the hero. With all that background now, let's look at this story and see what it has to tell us. We begin in Luke chapter 10, about midway through verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Let's pause there for a second. 
This opening of the story would have been scandalous, right off the bat. Priests and Levites are the heroes. These are the good guys. These are the religious elite of society. These are the people that, like Jesus' audience, would have been taught to look up to. So right off the bat, Jesus is being super provocative. The idea of a priest or a Levite ignoring this man on the side of the road would have been shocking. And this is important to kind of understand because as Christians, we tend to really misunderstand Jewish culture and Jewish religion, like really, really badly. Um, Often when you hear this story explained by Christians, there's usually this explanation given that there's some kind of religious reason the priest and Levite ignore this man, like they're afraid of becoming unclean or something like that. And that's just bogus. That's not really how it works. Um, There's no law in Judaism against helping people. That's crazy. Um, If you touch a dead body, you would technically be unclean. You'd have to purify yourself before you go into the temple. But what's the chance these people are heading to the temple anyway? All this story is, is a story of religious people turning a blind eye to suffering. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. Religious people, like us, are just as messed up as everybody else. We're just as likely to turn a blind eye to evil and suffering and pain because stopping to actually do something about it is hard. That takes work. Nothing has changed in 2,000 years in that regard. And that's what's going on here. Jesus' audience would have been just as shocked by that as we still are when this stuff happens again and again today. We on the same page there? I see nodding. Good. Back to the story. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which is about two days' wages, by the way, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. So as if Jesus' audience hasn't been scandalized enough, the third person to come by is a Samaritan. And I think think Doc put it well. That's about about what you could expect. It's always the third person who's the punchline, right, with these setups? Like if if you hear a joke about like a rabbi and a mom and a priest, the third one is always going to be the punchline. That's something else that hasn't changed in 2,000 years. It's the same here. And the third one is this Samaritan. A hated enemy, a person of mixed race, mixed ancestry, who belongs to the wrong religion and is universally seen as the bad guy. And what does this Samaritan do? The most dramatic outpouring of love and compassion imaginable. He bandages the man's wounds. He pours wine and oil on them, expensive commodities that are meant to cleanse and soothe the wounds. He puts him on his own animal. He takes him to an inn. He makes sure he's taken care of. He pays the bill and then promises to come back through and pay for anything else the man needs. Basically above and beyond even the norms of hospitality that folks back then would have expected. And I just love the exchange at the very end of this story. When Jesus is like, which of these was a neighbor to the man who was left to die on the side of the road? And the lawyer, this legal expert, he's like, the third one. 
he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. It's kind of like when your kids are in trouble and they know it, but like they're too afraid to verbalize it, you know? So it's just like, the one who showed him mercy, right? Like that's, that's basically how I see this going down. This whole exchange started out with this lawyer, this legal expert, testing Jesus. And when you read lawyer, that's not like a lawyer like we know them today. This is, this is like an expert of religious law. Think like a theology professor or a Bible teacher. Basically think me, I'm the villain in this story. And this expert tests Jesus by asking him what he has to do to inherit eternal life. That leads up to that famous line, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But this legal scholar doesn't stop there. He has a follow-up question. Who is my neighbor? And this parable, this provocative story is Jesus' response to that question. Who is my neighbor? This is not an innocent question. This is a question that's designed to build a wall, to establish a boundary, to determine who's in and who's out. Who is my neighbor? And the Good Samaritan is a parable that tears walls down. Jesus actually flips the script on this lawyer. Um, It's subtle, but it's there. The lawyer says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus asks, which one was a neighbor to this man? You see how that kind of flipped direction there? We read this story and we assume that we're the Samaritan. We're the hero. We're the good guy. We're the ones who are being called to be good neighbors, to help the guy by the side of the road. That's actually backwards. No one in Jesus' audience would have put themselves in the shoes of the Samaritan. In this story... You're the person by the side of the road. And the question is, who was a good neighbor to you? It's really easy to build these walls from a place of comfort. When you're like the legal scholar quizzing Jesus, or the person of privilege who's able to pass by and just ignore what's going on, it's really easy to put up walls then. But when you're the guy laying half dead on the side of the road, those walls fall down pretty quick. And if we're going to be people of God's kingdom, people who live according to God's reality, if we're going to follow the way of Jesus, those boundaries shouldn't even exist for us in the first place. So who is your neighbor? Let's be as provocative as as Jesus was as we kind of wrestle with that question. Who's your neighbor as we enter into a new election cycle? That fun time every couple years where the nation tears itself apart for a few weeks or a few months. Who's your neighbor when you're watching news at night or reading the paper in the morning? Who's your neighbor when there's someone, a refugee at your border, fleeing violence? Who's your neighbor when communities of color cry out for justice? Who's your neighbor when communities affected by
by violence cry out for action? Maybe a better question is, who's your enemy? Who are the Samaritans of your life? Who are the people we've locked out and condemned, not because of anything they've done to us personally, but because of who they are? Who are the people that don't belong? For some Christians, it might be someone from another religion, maybe a Muslim. For an atheist or someone who doesn't buy into organized religion, it could be a fundamentalist Christian. If you're a Democrat, it's a Trump supporter. If you're a Trump supporter, it might be an undocumented immigrant. Our world constructs walls so easily. And this story invites us to critically examine the walls in our own hearts. And the church, unfortunately, doesn't do much better with this stuff. Our congregation maybe does this better than some, but we all fall victim to this language of division. It's because we're human. We turn a blind eye to pain and suffering, just like the priest and the Levite. But it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus announces that a new kingdom is at hand. A new way of life, a new way of being in the world is possible, and the church is called to be living proof that that community is possible. This is where we practice that community. When we come together every week to sing, to pray, to read the Bible, when we're engaged out in our community, when we share the love of God with our neighbors, that's practicing God's kingdom. One of the things I love about church is it forces me into community with people that I wouldn't have much in common with otherwise. People of different races, different ages, people who vote differently than me. We practice this community here so we can live it out there. So may you be challenged by the parable of the Good Samaritan to examine the walls in your own life. May you discover the same opportunity to practice the beloved community of God right here in this church. And may that practice translate into a life of love and grace and compassion and a commitment to tearing down all the walls that the kingdoms of this world construct. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with us on Facebook at Brockport First Baptist, on Twitter at Brockport FB, and on our website, BrockportFirstBaptist.org. Our theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. This has been a production of Brockport First Baptist.